Now, even if you're like me and only have a, a passing interest in football, uh, you probably recognise who this guy is on the screen, Alex Ferguson. Now, his face has appeared in a lot of news coverage over recent weeks following the announcement of his uh, resignation as manager of uh, Manchester United Football Club. Now, in Sir Alex's 26 years in managing Manchester United, uh, a length of time which they expect not to be challenged in the current era of the sports, he's racked up an incredible amount of success, winning 38 trophies, 13 league titles, two Champions League crowns, five FA Cups, four League Cups, not to mention the development of the club into a global brand. Forgive me if you're not a Manchester United supporter. Neither am I. <laughs> um, I also remember seeing in a village in Rwanda, there was a bar there that was advertising the opportunity that evening to watch a Manchester United game, just as an expression of that global diversity, the global brand that Manchester United has become. And not just success on the field, but also financially. A 2011 brand finance report uh, reckoned that the club's trademarks and associated intellectual property was worth a record £412 million. Now, undoubtedly, Sir Alex has gathered a strong team around him, and yet it will be his name that is matched, that goes down in history with the unprecedented success of Manchester United, both on the pitch and off it. But with that success comes an interesting challenge when it comes to a time of transition. How do you manage change in such a way that as best you can, you can uh, ensure the future success of the club. You see, amidst the many tributes and accolades and celebrations of Sir Alex's success, press coverage was carefully managed to ensure and reassure that fans and investors could have confidence for the future of the club. In spite of these best efforts, however, a nervous stock market saw um, trading for 5% in the Manchester United share price. So change and transition is undoubtedly an unsettling time and one in which we can often question our confidence or the basis of our confidence. So how does this relate to us? And I guess as a church, we too are facing a time of transition with lots of great things to look back on that God has done and much to commit in prayer to him for our future. One of my personal highlights of the annual church meeting just a few weeks ago was looking back just to see how God had worked in our midst and as God's people in just the last 12 months. As we support Amy in the Middle East, along with our other mission partners, the growth of Aspire, our women's group, the strength and witness of Tofs, our group for over 55s, in what has been a tough year. Supporting local churches through our Spurgeon's preaching group, the faithful service of the music group and the youth work, and the number of people involved in home groups. We've got lots to give thanks to God for. And yet, as we consider in the coming months, we will face change. There's possibilities of more change. With a mixture of joy and pain, we uh, send Peter Coburn off to be involved in the, the Trinity Church plant in central Oxford, along with others from this church. As Tim and I and a small group of others consider what it is as we plan and pray to plant a missional church in Cowley, and as Morden Road here considers the possibility of build, uh, buying a church building that better serves our ministry needs. On the one hand, it's great to be able to reflect on the good things that God is doing in and through us. And on the other, we're rightfully prayerful and maybe even concerned 
as we commit some pretty ambitious plans to God for our future. And I wonder how we pray. I wonder how we'd like to see our prayers answered. I wonder what success or fruitfulness will look like for us as a church. How do we plan and pray to see our vision, our dreams become a reality in this area, in the lives of the people God has put us amongst in this community? How do we live in such a way that marks us out as God's people? How's our confidence doing this morning? I think the the beginning of this series in Philippians is actually really quite timely for us, and I'm excited about all that God will teach us through this six-week series. As we'll see in this deeply affectionate letter to the church in Philippi, there is much for Paul to give thanks to God for. Paul gives thanks to God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. He gives thanks that they're standing firm in spite of opposition. He commends them for their faithful obedience, and they've also supported Paul practically and in prayer. So in many ways, there's lots of reasons for Paul to give thanks to God, to feel a sense of pride as he looks and sees the success of some of his ministry. And yet Paul writes this letter from prison, most likely in Rome, and probably quite close to to his death. Whilst he longs, desires, and anticipates to see these brothers and sisters again, there's an underlying recognition that that might not be the case. He might not get to see them again. In fact, this letter might be his last communication with them. Away from the media spotlight, I wonder what Alex Ferguson is saying in private to his successor, David Moyes. I wonder what words of advice he'll be sharing as he briefs them on the strengths and weaknesses of the team in order to help David Moyes hit the ground running and and try and emulate some of that success and maintain some of that uh, persona of, of Alex Ferguson. As we read in Philippians, we're privileged to read some of Paul's final words to the church there, as he longs to see their continued fruitfulness and success. We get to hear Paul's priorities and concerns for them as they look to the future. This morning we're going to be looking at just the first 11 verses, which I believe call us to at least three responses. To celebrate our God-given identity, to be confident about God's continuing work, and to pray for fruitful growth to celebrate our God-given identity, to be confident about God's continuing work, and to pray for fruitful growth. I'm going to suggest we actually just read those verses again, partly because if you're anything like me, I actually find it hard to concentrate at the beginning of Paul's letters. I think the greetings and the words that they contain feel so familiar that it's usually halfway through the first chapter I realise I've tuned out and need to tune back in again. Maybe you're not like me. Maybe that's a secret confession, no, not secret. If you are like me, I'm going to suggest there's maybe just three things to be looking out for as we read through the verses again. Firstly, note Paul's feelings for the church. We've said this is a deeply affectionate letter, and look out for the way that Paul demonstrates that in his love and concern for the church. Also look out for the number of times in the space of just a few short verses that Paul references Jesus. And thirdly, and I know this sounds obvious, remember that this is a letter written to a church, not to individuals. It's important when we come to apply the text to remember that. That possibly even means that this isn't written just to one local expression of the church, but rather all of God's holy people in that city. And related to that, note the frequency with which Paul uses words like all and every. So those three things to look out for. Paul's feelings about the church, 
The number of times Paul refers to Jesus, and remembering this is not written to an individual. So let's just read that passage again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insights, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let's consider firstly how this passage causes us to celebrate our God-given identity. Now, I'm sure most of you are familiar with a document that looks like this, a passport. And in some ways, it is just a little purple book, mostly filled with empty pages, and yeah, with a slightly embarrassing photo in the back. But on the other hand, it's actually a really significant document. It represents something quite significant. And I hadn't realised how much I took my passport for granted until I lived in Moldova. Through my time there, I came to appreciate just how easy it was for me to travel and how difficult it was for many of my friends there to travel. Out of fear of economic migration, that Moldovans wouldn't return back to their country if they visited somewhere else, few of them had the same ability as I had to travel and visit other countries just because I held a British passport. Now, citizenship is just one image that the Bible uses to help us think about what it is to be God's people and to live under his kingship. In this passage, we see Paul using words and images that help us see our Christian identity as a privileged status, which is then expressed in different ways. In verse 1, Paul opens his letter, addressing the Philippians as God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Similarly, he describes himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. In verse 7, we see that Paul's sense of gratitude and joy comes from the fact that All of you share in God's grace with me. God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. God's people set apart to love and serve him, securely found in Christ Jesus, partakers in God's grace. And those words of status are equally true for us, aren't they? God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Oxford. God's people set apart to love and serve him, securely found in Christ Jesus, partakers in God's grace. We also see that identity, that status expressed in their partnership in the gospel in verse 5 and in the exhibition of their love in verse 9. Paul prays with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and prays that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight.
God's people have a God-given identity. Holy people, servants, those who share in God's grace. And that identity finds itself expressed in practical ways as partners in the gospel, living out the good news of Jesus Christ together, loving God, loving neighbours, inviting others to hear the good news and to respond to God's love. Living in Moldova, I came to better appreciate the privileges of having a, a, a British passport. But I also felt slightly embarrassed that these privileges were given to me and not to my Moldovan friends because of something that neither I nor they could do. I had no choice about our place of birth. My entitlement to a British passport has nothing to do with me. And yet it brings great privilege, which I still regularly take for granted. Similarly, I did nothing to deserve my heavenly citizenship. And yet it was brought at great cost and brings immense privilege. And when it comes to Christian identity, there are many books that deal with the issue of assurance, how we can be confident in our salvation and identity in Christ. But I wonder whether a bigger issue for us is ambivalence. The challenge that we all too easily take our Christian identity for granted. Do we approach our heavenly set of citizenship with complacency, leading to ambivalence in our faith? It's perhaps unsurprising that Paul goes to some length to reiterate the identity of the church in Philippi. Our God-given identity is something we're foolish to become complacent about and something we really ought to celebrate more exuberantly. These truths about our status in Christ are amazing things. Let's continue to ponder them. Let these truths break into your week this week. Think of them often. Remind one another in your home groups. How will these deep, important truths work their way out in your life this week? How will our life as a church be marked by our regular celebration of our status in Christ Jesus? I guess in some ways that's what we do in communion, and we celebrate our status as God's people. So God's people can and should regularly celebrate their God-given identity. Secondly, God's people can be confident about God's continuing work. I wonder how many of you recognise the building that's on the screen. And if anyone can tell me what it is and why it's famous. Uh, it's like Ala Familia in uh-huh. um, Barcelona. Yeah. It's probably famous because it was never really finished. Yeah. Top points for Bernhard. <laughs> yes, the Sagrada Familia is a large basilica in Barcelona in Spain. And it's famous mostly for being incomplete. Or if you want to put a more positive spin on it, it's a work in progress. Designed by Gaudi, work actually began on this church in 1882. Gaudi was then, uh, he died in 1926, and at that point the project was still less than a quarter complete. Work's been interrupted by civil war and has continued intermittently because of lack of funds. Currently the anticipated completion date is 2026, although even in 2011 they were suggesting that that might be two years later than anticipated. Now, after such a long period, I'm sure there are many who have questioned whether the work would ever be complete. For both those living in Barcelona, and particularly for those who are working on the Basilica, the slow progress must be quite disheartening. It must be used to question whether it's wise to keep throwing money at a project that's taking so long to complete. But I guess that's what the Christian life can feel like sometimes for ourselves as well. (coughs) 
Christian life can feel like a long slog with little visible sign that we're making much progress. It can feel like in a lot of efforts just to try and live faithfully day by day. We don't always see much fruit for it. And we live in danger of losing perspective of the bigger picture. The same is true in our corporate witness as a church too, isn't it? We faithfully put on events at Christmas, for example, year after year, building good relationships with the community. But wouldn't it be great if we saw a greater number of people showing interest in faith and coming to Christ? For us to be able to see more visible fruit for these efforts. Or even in our discipleship as a church. It can be tiring as we continue to see in ourselves the sin that we continue to pray about, the same issues and battles that we regularly pray for God to change our attitude and behaviour. Sometimes it just feels like there's such little progress. Will God's work in us ever be done? Well, Paul writes with confidence that the work God has begun in the Philippian church, he will continue to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul has observed the beginnings of the church in Philippi. He's seen individuals come to Christ and the birth of the church in that city. He writes to affirm them in the the good that he sees, demonstrated in their partnership in the gospel and in their love. God has been at work to build and strengthen the church there. And we know that Paul is grateful to God for his work. It's his work both in purpose and in action. And because of that, Paul can write and pray with confidence that God will continue that work to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is where I feel it's important to note that this is written to a church, to a group of believers. We need to be wary of reading this, as we're sometimes inclined to do, that God will continue to do his work in me even though that is also true. One of the problems with reading verse 6 in this way, however, is that we run into a problem of chronology. How does God's work continue in me to completion until the day of Christ Jesus? That final day when Christ returns to usher in his kingdom, if I die before that day? At the point of my death, whether that's tomorrow or in 50 years' time, God will have completed his work in me, whether or not Jesus has returned. Rather, I think we need to remember that God will continue to do his work in his church to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. God is faithful to his people both individually and corporately. God will continue his work in the Philippian church, his gathered people in Philippi, even today, bringing his witness through the church to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Whilst the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona is not yet finished, it's still beautiful and functional. The expectation is that work will continue until it's completed. And whilst the Church of Christ is not yet finished, it is still beautiful and functional. Even in our imperfections, we demonstrate something of the wisdom of God at work to the world around us and to the the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realms. And we can be supremely confident that this is God's work and he will see it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's people can be confident about God's continuing work. And finally, God's people pray for fruitful growth. We've seen Paul remind the church of their God-given identity and of his confidence that God will continue the work that he's doing and bring it to completion. 
God's written, Paul has written regarding what God has done in the past and the present confidence that we can take from that. In verse 9, Paul turns his attention to the church's future as he prays for fruitful growth, that their love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insights. Now, I think there are a couple of things here that would be really helpful for us to note. Firstly, Paul's prayer is an expression of grateful joy. And we see this in verses 3 and 7. So verse 3, it says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. And in verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I wonder if that sounds like our prayers. I'm aware that this passage and even this entire letter is a, a challenge to me in my own personal prayer life. How often am I so thankful to God as I'm prompted to remember day by day that it's expressed in joyful prayer as an overflow of deep, grateful joy? In addition to the manner in which our prayers are expressed, Paul also prays specific things for the church that they might have an ever-growing love. As we've noticed, verse 9 recognises that love that is already exhibited in the church. Paul doesn't pray for them to demonstrate love, but rather that their existing love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insights so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Firstly, Paul prays that their love would grow in knowledge and depth of insights so that you may be able to discern what is best, in verses 9. Our love should grow alongside our knowledge of the things of God, enabling us to see the heart of matters, grasping something as it really is, informed and illuminated by the Holy Spirit's. As one commentator puts it, like other sorts of love, Christian love needs knowledge to know what to love and discernment to know how to love. This is love modelled on the love of Christ, learned from scripture and applied in obedient living. Secondly, he prays that the growth of their love would demonstrate itself in their inner life and outward behaviour, that we might be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I'm very aware that we need to be careful we don't become religious about this, particularly straight after a sermon series called Pharisees Anonymous, striving to do something on our own that proves that we're right with God. But equally, we should be concerned if our life does not display these characteristics in increasing measure as God does his work in us. And thirdly, Paul's prayer is that this ever-growing love will bring glory and praise to God that the very result of our love growing in knowledge and depth of insights is not just that we will be pure and blameless, but that God receives glory for that. As we're filled with the fruit of righteousness, God receives glory and that is manifested in our lives. It is an immense privilege to be able to come to God in prayer, to bring every detail of our lives to the creator of the world. I wonder how this passage might inform our prayers in the coming week. Perhaps this is something to ponder together in home groups. With all that lies ahead of us as a church, how might this passage inform and shape our prayers? God's people pray for fruitful growth. I wonder how we're doing at that. 
How is your personal prayer life doing at the moment? How are we doing as a church? We have many opportunities to gather together to pray. First Tuesday meetings, prayer breakfast on Thursday morning, in our home groups, in our friendships together in, in church. Do we long for these opportunities to meet together that we might express our grateful joy to God? Why do we do that just now? Remembering that as those who share in God's grace, we can be confident of God's continued work as we pray for God-honouring, fruitful growth.